Hello and welcome to another episode of James Bond and Friends. This week, James Bond is on assignment, so I'm your fill-in host, James Page from mi6hq.com and MI6 Confidential Magazine. This is the podcast for you if you love James Bond and nerd out on all the history of the books, the films, and the games, and all the trivia surrounding it. For example, did you know that in the 1960s, it was quite common to see James Bond begin to smoke after sex? That's why he started using lubricant. Oh, huh. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. That, 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 that was a thinker. Yeah, thinker. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, it's a good show. It's a good oh. show. <laughs> this, sorry. I've had way worse jokes that you guys are still laughed at than that one. All right. <laughs> this week we're talking about unsung characters. And the James Bond films, people that are on the screen for a very limited time, but they have an impact on the film or an impact on you personally as the viewer. Um, this was spawned by the viral tweet that was going around this week about who's in a film for left, less than 15 minutes but makes a huge impact. So we thought we'd pick out some folks that are not villains, Bond girls, allies, sacrificial lambs. It's some of the folks that maybe struggle to even have a line, right? But they stand out in the film for one reason or another. So we're going to go around the houses to pick our favorites, and I have this spinny wheel of randomness. And first up this week is Phil. Oh, wonderful. So you, like minimal. I asked for ground rules, but we didn't really get any about the ground rules. Uh, about No uh, ground rules. No ground rules. Yeah, I'm screwed um, there as well, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> you know, I wanted to say the tie boy, but I always do. <laughs> but no, I think I think that if you wanted to take someone with minimal screen time, who uh, whose echoes are sort of felt throughout the franchise, you have to go with Sylvia Trench because she is mm. the first object or first target, I guess, of Bond's charm and uh, and sexual interest, and uh, she is she demonstrates who he is in a way that Connery himself cannot, right? He needs to play against someone. He can't just show up and, and be, be bond. He has to be bond to someone. And, and she provides that in such an impactful way that um, up to, and including the fact that the famous bond, James Bond is him mimicking her saying trench, Sylvia trench. She sets that for 60 mm-hmm. years. Um, and I think that there's a reason when she passed, we heard about it a little bit more than maybe some of the other uh, day players and drive-by Bond girls of, of past years when when they when their time came. Well, um, she was actually on my list as well, but I will actually add this: she when she's mentioned, if at all, it's like, oh, she's one of Bond's conquests. I would actually argue Bond was actually her conquest. Mm. Because, like, she knows what she wants and she goes after it. And she's obviously a person of somewhat independent means. You know, she's casually writing a check for a thousand, I assume a thousand pounds in the casino sequence of Dr. No. And also, she adds some uh, connectivity to the first two films because she's in both of them. Right. And, and like that, now that bit would have that would have worn out its welcome if they did it a third or fourth time. But uh, in terms of the first two, I think 
I think it's like a very perfect addition. And again, that character was not in the novels. That was something the filmmakers came up with. Yeah. And she's not, she's not uh, some, some plaything. Like you say, she's, she's sort of toe to toe with him. Uh, I think it's also significant that she's got an engagement ring on in the first film. Yeah. Bill was saying that she's not in the books, but I, I've always in my mind connected her with something in the books, which is that there is, I don't remember which novel it is, and um, Fleming talks about you know Bond's routine in London, and he's talking about he he, get, he sees one of three married women and yeah. so on. And for me, she's one of the married women. It could mm-hmm. be, yeah. I think that was Moonraker, um, but yeah, she she fits the fabric of Fleming very very well. I think, even though she's a, a creation of the films, but she is just that footprint is stamped down in the first few minutes of that film and mm-hmm. is, is felt throughout the franchise. Uh, so if you're talking about impact and ripple effects, I think Sylvia Trench is up there. Yeah. And I love the way that you describe the fact that we experience Bond through her. So we don't really see Sean Connery sitting at the table. We see her. We see him from the back. We see her actions and reactions. We see her lifting her eyebrow um, and engaging with him and then prompting him with her iconic introduction, Trench Sylvia Trench. And so it's really through a woman in the franchise that we experience Bond. And I think that is also the template that makes its way through through the rest of the films, that Bond, yes, he's defined by Sean Connery and all the other actors and the actions and, and words that he says, but he's also defined by the women in this world. And I think she's the perfect person to just start off this relationship at the beginning in the inaugural Bond film. And on top of all that, like Bond makes his initial play, he gives her his business card and like, maybe we can play golf sometime, but then like, then she, you know, jumps ahead of him, gets to his apartment and is in, you know, the pajama tops, um, which catches Bond off guard. And then like, well, I, you know, like I have to go. It's like, oh, you have to go. And then, well, he doesn't have to go right now. So yeah, I mean, it's. It's a very memorable character, and like I said, she was in two films. And you know, to be honest, I thought about it a lot more after um, Eunice Gason passed away about how significant that character was, you know, to the series. And uh, yeah, I, 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 I think she's right up there. Can we talk about the ring for a second? Because I think that yeah. was a recent discovery by some folks with the 4K transfers the doctor know that she's wearing that engagement ring hmm. um i hadn't noticed it before somebody pointed out on twitter I, 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 this I, is the first i'd heard about it but I've, I've always i've always thought that she was one of the these three married women so <clears> it <throat> that that is right. an interesting detail yeah i heard about it on a different podcast a number of years ago and i thought it was a significant discovery okay next on the wheel of doom is <laughs> David. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> right. I, 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 I was going to go for one person, but uh, there was a bit of a, a change in the ground rules. So I, I've actually, um, I'm going to go for somebody else, which uh, is iconic. And it is Blofeld's cat because it, <laughs> you didn't say it had to be human. Yeah. And That's in, right. <laughs> you know, in in the early films, all you saw of Blofeld basically was was his cat, and 
so uh, he represented uh, Blofeld from right from the right from the start, and uh, and you know, and it, the cat is so iconic. You see a, a white fluffy cat anywhere, and you, you just think Blofeld. It, it's 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 that mm-hmm. simple. Uh, you know, the it was. It was interesting that Inspector that they, you know, the the uh, character of Blofeld was so different, but he still had a white cat. It, there wasn't so much made of it, but uh, it, it's still there and it, it's tied to Blofeld forever, I think. Can I ask a question? Do they ever tell us the gender of the cat or are we to sit here and assume that, you know, this notion that Blofeld would rather touch the white pussy cat? then in in a sense engage with a human being and i don't know if the gendering of that cat has any connection to, beyond this this already um separation from say quote unquote like normative sexuality and, and and especially in comparison to james bond who is defined by his libidinal masculinity i just don't know if they've ever defined it because you said he wow. when you described the cat so i i just oh, just ever the, 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 the cat yeah. the cat's name the cat's name was chico and it was a he Mm. Did, 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 did I describe the cat as he? Yeah. Is, mm-hmm. yeah, but that, you just quickly said uh, it, and, okay, and okay. I was like, yeah, no, oh. I, I, I don't, I, I wasn't aware of that. I, I have no idea. I, I, I don't think I knew its sex. <laughs> How many cats did they have? Because that one from You and Live Twice sure as hell wasn't coming back for the next one. It was freaking out about those <laughs> no, explosions. That You Only Live Twice cat had a grand kitty who did the photo shoot with Miriam Darbo for Living Daylights. Huh? God. So the, lineage, the lineage continues. Wow. James is keeping track of all the people that didn't read the special yeah. Blofeld cat issue. That's right. Of MI6 <laughs> Confidential. It's coming. It's coming. It's actually going to be an audio book, Calvin, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my yes. gosh. Yes. <gasps> Calvin has Blofeld's cat. <laughs> Maybe maybe I was maybe I was thinking of Calvin when I was thinking of the cat, which is why I said he. <laughs> well, if John Pearson can do a fictional autobiography, I don't see why we can't do one for his cat for Blofeld's cat. Mm. Question is that is that licensed off the film franchise because it's not in the books? Well, there mm. was a book which is the world according to Blofeld's cat. Ah, yes, I've got that. Uh, yeah, that was uh, funny. Which oh, I was a bit surprised uh, was allowed to come out. Uh, I think the publisher sent me a copy. I can't really remember very much about it, but <laughs> that's a ringing endorsement. <laughs> I, I, I think it was moderately funny, but I, I can't. I can't really remember. I thought it was funny. Yeah, I liked it. All right. Next on, next on the spinner is Bill. So I have three choices. I'm going to go with of the three: Baron Samady from *Live and Let Die*, played by Jeffrey Holder. Ooh. Who um, makes, while having limited screen time, really makes the most of it. And uh, Jeffrey Holder was a definitely a charismatic actor. And also, Baron Samity has, you know, it's like at the very end of the movie, you know, it's like he had appeared to have been killed, but he's riding on top of the train. So, like, is that a sign that, like, well, you have to take this supernatural thing seriously at least up to a up to a point um he definitely again as i said he makes the most of his uh limited screen time and uh 
yeah, he, he's just, you know, like every time he's on screen, like you, you look at him, like at one point Bond and Solitaire are, are uh, walking and then suddenly up he pops, you know, beautiful morning, man, beautiful morning. And just, you know, it's just, he's always provides a sense of menace and like, yeah, he's, I, I think he's a big plus of live and let die. Yeah, I, I think he's a really good choice. Uh, it's uh, yeah, absolutely iconic character. Yeah, and he has very, very little time. And whose fate is indeterminate. He's still riding the train. <laughs> <laughs> when we were fleshing out ideas for a uh, Roger Moore um, EA game before they signed Connie from Farage of Love, Samadhi and Teehee from Living Let Die were characters that we had penciled in as potential returns. Ah. Because their fates were in the gray area, right? Was <clears throat> he really dead? Apparently mm-hmm. not. You know, if you take the movie literally, or like, or is he dead? Is he the living dead? Well, who knows? But yeah, I mean, just yeah. I mean, and I'll just say this as well: that ending of "Live and Let Die" is unique in the series. You don't have anything quite like it in any other movie. That's true. Yeah, there's no other film. There's no other film that ends with a shot of. The bad guy, or a, or a henchman, or anything oh, else. Not with the golden gun. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, but but yeah, but, he he's dead, a, he, but, but he's in a but he's in a cage. Yeah. You know, knickknacks yeah. in a cage and captured. We're upon like Darren yeah, Salmon is clearly at yeah, liberty. Yeah, yeah, right. Like how David, you weren't the first to jump to the man with the golden gun being the answer to that question. <laughs> 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 okay, we got Baron Samadhi from Bill. Next up is. Calvin. Uh-huh. So I, I do want to start this out by saying that I know we're doing this in response to that 15-minute uh, viral tweet that went out, the characters with less than 15 minutes screen time. 15 minutes is actually quite a big, big chunk of screen time for an awful lot of films, and particularly mm. in Bond with the kind of casts and jet setting and such. So I did go through a few options just to sort of contextualize how you know how little screen time some characters need to actually make uh, an impact and if you'll indulge me on in this before i get to my actual choice okay. uh, so dr kaufman in tomorrow never dies mm. is in it from around 55 minutes in to 59 minutes in oh, he's yeah. just in it for four minutes yes uh, Valentin Zukovsky in Goldeneye is in it for about four minutes. And hmm. even in The World Is Not Enough, where you think he'd have a much more significant uh, amount of time on screen, he's only in it for around about 17 minutes. These are all rough approximations. Um, and Sheriff Pepper as well in Live and Let Die, he's in it for about 13 minutes. Uh, just that one big sequence. And even in The Man with the Golden Gun, he's only really in it for around about 11, despite being in two scenes. Hmm. Um, I would say all of those are very memorable characters characters with really tiny um, bits of screen time. Um, But the one that I picked for the purpose of this podcast is uh, Dolly from Moonraker. Oh, there we go. There we go. Who are you? Now you're you're just asking for it, Calvin. I I thought you were going to say Mrs. Bell, because you put, Uh, put that in your videos. Yeah, I do love Mrs. Bell. But no, Dolly, okay. Do- Mrs. Bell is very memorable. Dolly, I think, is an interesting phenomenon, um, not only because she's a very memorable part of that film. I think most people remember from that, like Jaws gets a girlfriend and she's this tiny um, lady with the blonde pigtails and all of that. But just the amount of conspiracy theories that it also launches amongst people who aren't even really 
that big a Bond fans. The fact that, you know, there, there are so many articles online about how her non-existent braces were apparently removed and uh, the, um, the Mandela um, effect and all that kind yeah. of stuff. She uh, broke people's brains. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> Um, and I think that I think that's quite something for a character with no lines of dialogue, and um, all she does is kind of. Uh, I mean, I do think she the, the actress actually gives quite a good performance. Like, we we all remember the bit where she first meets Jaws, and they go off smiling hand in hand. But there is a moment between her and Jaws on the space station towards the end where she's pivotal in turning him his allegiance from the, from, from the good guys to the bad guys. From, I'm sorry, I interrupted. I apologize. Oh no, no, yes. no. From the bad guys to the good guys, though. Yes, yes, yes. right, yeah. yeah. Um, and that's all done without dialogue. It's just these two actors looking at each other. You have to process a lot of what they're doing in those moments, and I think they're both really effective in that. Um, she's in quite a few shots throughout, but I think she's in, uh, collectively in there for around about five minutes, which is uh, pretty impressive, I think, and uh, for a character with the impact that she had. Um yeah. She do, she does that while Drax is doing his speech about the perfect race up in up in space and all that stuff. Yeah, that's actually that's actually a very critical moment in the film. It's the bit where he's uh, talking about yeah, he wants Jaws to expel them and he's uh, t- Bond is sort of coaxing Drax into talking about how he's going to have this genetically superior um race of people and uh, you know Jaws obviously being very tall and Dolly being very short Bond's obviously getting to the idea for it to click with them like oh maybe we don't actually fit in with these people that he's assembled and maybe we shouldn't um be going all along with this. Um, and I think it's re- I think it's a really lovely moment. Uh, and actually quite tender in all of the silliness going on around it. It's a moment of seriousness in an over-the-top film, mm. but it is serious. Mm. I, I'm sorry, Lisa. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say the professor in me is very impressed with Calvin's response and the way <laughs> that you really fleshed it out and really came to the heart of how long certain characters have been and how much impact they can have. And I think Dolly's a really good example of somebody with I, I, no dialogue having that type of of impact specifically on Jaws, who has little to no impact. The fact that these are both, in a sense, silent figures and they have to rely on body language and and chemistry between them. And this is a film where Jaws is humanized, but it's because of her that he's humanized. And it's because of her that we find him so incredibly endearing that he has shifted from being this her, her uh, villain of, of, of horror. I'm trying to think of like her, heroic, but I, yeah, it doesn't matter. Uh, horror <laughs> is not heroic, but this, this figure from a horror film, right? Like he's, he's imposing and he's scary oh, in the film before. And yet in this one, she, she just sort of, she, she helps to, to give us the tender side of him. And I think she's a really brilliant choice uh, for all the reasons that you said, and especially for what she means to Jaws um, and how we read his character in Moonraker. So it's a really good choice. Hmm. And Calvin, on the math part of it, she, you said five <laughs> minutes of screen time. How many minutes of your channel is she on? Oh. That's a hell of a ratio, I think. Yeah, no, so, so much. <laughs> uh, photoshopping those braces onto her oh. teeth <laughs> frame by frame was uh, I, 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 yeah, an experience. Calvin, I, I, I thought you, you gave a, a fantastic answer here, here as well, even though I'm not a professor. Um, but uh, <laughs> I, w- I would also like to say that probably uh, Maud Adams in A View to a Kill uh, – <laughs> she has had a lot of impact as well. Uh, for zero screen time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Allegedly. Uh, yeah. Especially, especially, 
especially on Calvin's uh, free time. <laughs> yeah, I just did some quick maths, Calvin, on your on your Dolly's braces video, and you've um, you've taken 138 days out of humanity. Um, <laughs> Good lord! So, <laughs> oh, I'm half sorry. a working year. <laughs> Doing the Lord's work, Calvin. But uh, um, has a smaller character ever launched more t-shirts? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So last up, Lisa. So. I really like Calvin's choice, so um, I'm kind of throwing my support behind his. But <laughs> I would have to say, as somebody who likes A View to a Kill, and I've brought this up on the podcast before, but we're going to go down this path again. Um, I want to throw my support behind Jenny Flex and Panho. And so basically in the film, you have Max Zorin and it sets it up as if he is sort of in a villainous partnership with Mayday. But when we look at the character of Mayday, she has a really close relationship with Jenny Flex and Pan Ho. Um, These characters are not developed in the series. And yet when Max Zorin is doing some of his, his villainous stuff, you have him being flanked by a group of women. And the one thing that I really wanted to see more of, because it's something that fascinated me when I watched the film and that I think they had constructive potential to really develop was seeing Max Zorin really fully being insulated by a group of women. And especially when he goes um, for the Silicon Valley, the guys on the blimp and, and all that stuff, it literally is a group of men, right? Representing the tech industry. And how would it have looked to have him being just surrounded by women going after um, the, the tech industry? And when we think about water being associated with femininity, uh, utilizing the water to take it out, I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff that they could have really gotten into. But when we think about Jenny Flex and Pan Ho, their death is really what causes Mayday to turn on Zorin. So not only did he betray her and try to kill her, but you really see this emotional moment when Jenny Flex is in the water going past and she says, Jenny, and she goes and she moves towards her. And Bond is like, no, we need to get out of here. And that is really the start or the spark that sets her off on her quest of a vengeance, where then she utilizes the crank to remove the bond, the bomb. And then on the whatever trolley thing that that's going on, when Bond steps off, she's the one who completes the mission. And so I feel as though these two women played such a huge role in the life of Mayday, but I would argue that they could have played a more impactful role in defining Zorin and Mayday and this villainous plot had they been given more screen time, some lines, um, and really been fleshed out as characters. Mm. They were in a cutscene of uh, City Hall carrying the gas cans in and out and stuff, and doing more of that legwork for Zarin. But right, and the uh, actress who played Jenny Flex also shows up in the third Indiana Jones movie. So that was perhaps a kind of semi tryout for her to get into that film. Mm-hmm. She's played against three Bonds, hasn't she? Yes. Ah, yes, Taffin. Mm-hmm. Who wants to do it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm too weak from my vaccine. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great shout out, Lisa. I like it a lot. So mine was going to be Raul, but not Mr. Silver. The other Raul, who popped up and died another day, briefly. Oh, yeah. Um, And I think this was like Purvis and Wade's kind of nod to Karen Bay a little Mm. bit. Um, Mm. Because he's kind of this avuncular, charismatic, chilled kind of guy. Um, 
who really sets who really kicks the film off because he's the one that puts the pieces together about the um conflict diamonds not be really being conflict diamonds and he gives bond the car and the gun to sort of go after zhao and everything <clears throat> and then he he's gone from the film um yeah and also he is um he's very much like uh in fact i always thought purpose the way like did him as a uh, kind of a homage to uh uh oh from Russia with love because yeah because he just he he has a very similar temperament um yeah yeah the way he, de- he delivers his lines yeah that that's a great that's a great idea james i remember some bond aficionados after the diner the day premiere saying talking to them afterwards like wow the first 45 minutes you know before the invisible car shows up it's like top solid bond film and i think that's kind of held true over 20 years um which is a scary thought it's 20 years I know. Um, coming up for 20 years um and i think his character and bond going back to kind of the old ways and all of these elements obviously purpose and way kind of recycled for skyfall right um but in dino the day it's like 10 minutes <laughs> it's not the premise for the whole film it's just 10 minutes um the way that he kind of gets Bond back on track, I think, was was great, and and also the ambiguity of the character talking mm-hmm. about you know freedom fighters are other people's terrorists, vice versa, um, well, which well, we're going to see kind of echoed in No Time to Die a little bit with Felix. He's living in uh, Cuba, which is a totalitarian company or country, but um, but at the same time, he has you know he's a very you know very human character, very uh, sympathetic character. He's just yeah he. Every scene he's in, you know, your eyes go to him. He was my choice. All right. So um, they were all our first choices. And we can go to like the chaos of, yeah, just want to throw some random ones at people now. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so I'm going, to put, I'm going to put a Twitter poll out with these choices and see, see what the audience thinks mm. out, of the, out of the six we picked. My one actually was... Uh, Mathis in Quantum of Solace because he can't be in it for more than 10 minutes, but all the scenes that he is in, uh, he completely steals. And so um, Mm. it's it's not, you know, he he, he doesn't make an impact on on the whole series, but on the film, he certainly does. And he... You know, I think he, he outplays Daniel Craig in those scenes, uh, and he, he definitely has the best lines. You try stealing a scene when you're being thrown in the garbage. <laughs> <laughs> no easy not, task. Not, not that exact scene. <laughs> I, mean, I was on board. I get it. <laughs> it still happens, but yeah. <laughs> but especially in Casino. Especially in Casino, because there's a, one point where... Um, Mathis points out the uh, corrupt police official who is Michael G. Wilson. That's part of his uh, cameo. It's like, oh, and the, that's one of my personal worst Michael G. Wilson uh, cameos because it's just like you, it's almost like a Warner Brothers cartoon where it's like you expect to see like neon signs saying Michael G. Wilson cameo right here. It just, I, I but. But uh, it, you know, Mathis and Casino Royale is just great. And I, I would have loved to have seen the Mathis character continue throughout Daniel Craig era. He, he was just so good. Are you spinning um, the wheel? 
What? No, we're just doing random ones now because well, okay. we're going for pure, you know, chaos. Got it. Well, let me just do one pure chaos um, because I have not timed it to see if it matched 15 minutes precisely. But I would actually put Jack Lord as Felix Lighter mm. because, like, Felix is, you know, the Lord Felix of Lighter is like the one guy who is like stands up to Bond. He gets the drop on Bond. He, um, and like in the scene at uh, Pussfellers, where uh, uh, the photographer gets Bond's photograph and like Bond gets agitated and he sends Quirrell after her. And like, you know, like Felix is like trying to calm him down, like pours him a drink. And like then later when they're getting ready to go out to uh, Crab Key, uh, the Jack Lord Felix says, yeah, I've been waiting for two hours. So it's like, you know, it's like the Jack Lord Felix, you know, did some pushback against bond like they like each other you know but you know but he's not you know the greek chorus which happened later in the series but uh yeah so i i would put i would put that in for consideration in a general sense again he might have more time than 15 minutes precisely i didn't time it but you know just you know he, he doesn't have a lot of time but he makes a lot of a lot of it that he gets with uh, Jack Lord's Felix, uh, I I kind of discarded him because I um I thought he I thought he had a much bigger part, but it it may just be the impact that he has in it because yeah he's he's fantastic in it. I think it is more the impact than the actual time. I mean, again, I didn't I didn't get out the stopwatch to check. Is it fifteen? Is it twenty minutes? It's not more than twenty minutes. I know that, but. Uh, because I just watched it recently, mm. but uh, yeah, I mean, again, because after Jack Lord, you know, it's like a lot of times, you know, whether it's Cease Linder, whether it's you know Rick Van Nutter, whoever, it's like, hey, James, go on, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, you know, like Jack Lord actually gives a little bit of pushback, not a lot, but you know, but some. I do have another suggestion. So we might, can we maybe do like a second Twitter poll? Um, so besides, as we talked about before we started recording, Sweeperman, who's my favorite extra, um, and a figure like Shotgun Granny, uh, you know, I think that there's like these these little moments that come up. Somebody who I feel as though has had a lot of impact for very little screen time would be Jill Masterson. Um, and this idea that she is with Bond at the beginning of Goldfinger and then she dies being covered with gold. This is an image that has remained iconic in the world of Bond. I'm looking at my wall and I see my 50 years of James Bond poster, which is basically a gold woman with the different titles of the Bond films cast on her body. And when I even think about Funko and and their first woman figure which i wrote to them and said it was really problematic they literally just put out the golden woman and they didn't even give her a name uh, because they felt that she was so I- iconic right, in the so franchise they didn't have to pay her. well that is true well. <laughs> <laughs> but i think she's somebody who we should also keep in mind very little screen time but her long-term impact on this franchise and on the mm. imagery associated with the uh, franchise yeah. um can- really can't be like under underestimated that's a good call lisa um, if I could go ahead with mine, which are probably very personal choices, and um, I'm not sure if many people can relate to this, but uh, 
Casino Royale bit players, as in the 2006 Daniel Craig one. There are so many small, just like receptionist and dealer type roles in that film that I think are really well performed for who I assume were, you know, bit part extras, you know, just kind of brought in for a couple of lines of dialogue. The receptionist, the blonde lady when Bond first comes into the Ocean Club, um, and, and he's asking her, and, and they just do this, like, if it was the Roger Moore era, she would have done the Tex Avery sort of thing, and her eyes would have popped out of her head, and like Valerie Leon in um, Spy Who Loved <laughs> Me sort of thing. But in, it's very subtly done. It's really good acting, I think. You just get the sense that there's this little bit of flirting going on between them, but it's very realistic, and certainly not overdone. Um and I think a couple of the card dealers um, in the film are great. Obviously, the guy with the the uh, the goatee who's doing the main dealing at the main game in the Casino Royale. But then also there's a lady, again, I think in the Ocean Club, right. who is, uh, she's just really sort of, she's got a nice attitude to her. She just feels very real. And she's yeah. not got many yeah. lines, but it's, it's lovely when she's like reacting to Demetrius putting his car keys on the table and all that kind of stuff. And just like shrugging when Bond says it's all right. I think they're just really nice little bits of acting and i i think she was like an actual card dealer or yeah, something like that's right that. yeah. it's really like not a not a professional actor right yeah so i i just think those small parts in that they're, they're kind of nothing rolls by just what's on the page but i think the actors just bring just the right level of realism and personality to really just make them pop yeah the double taking pigeon, same thing uh, for me. Just gonna say on, on the subject of the little casino royale characters. I mean, who could fit Mr. Mendel and his chocolates? Mm. Mm. Oh, very true. Yeah, <laughs> I think he's great. And, and what about mm. Casino Royale '67 and the sheep? Who can forget them? Well, <laughs> well, well, if you really want to go like way in the in the uh, background, like in Honor Match's Secret Service, when like Bond comes into the hotel right after the. Uh, the main titles like if you go back this is this falls under the category category of one scene cannot be unseen so like last christmas eve when i was watching the movie again it's like the hotel clerk back there is like he's so happy to see james bond he's like practically jumping up and down and like the bellhop yeah look james bond's here it's like it's way in the back of the shot like whoa like they're really happy james bond's here he doesn't even tip very well no. <laughs> Do you want to expand a bit about your sweeper guy, Lisa? Talking about meme characters. Yeah. And so sweeper guy is featured in a scene where Daniel Craig is on a motorcycle and he appears in the background and he's literally there with a broom and his goal is just to sweep, right? He's supposed to be a background character. But if you actually look at the image, the broom is like a good foot off the ground. Like there's no, like, I don't know if he's just utilizing like the power of wind to get rid of the dirt um, or he's trying to do it in a very quiet manner. I, I don't know, but he doesn't actually end up sweeping. And so to me, he's become iconic because his one job was to sweep and to show <laughs> and convey that he's sweeping. And so unlike Calvin's great description here of bringing life through 
through like realism. I feel as though he brings life through the lack of realism. And every time I watch that film or every time people ask me about like iconic figures of Bond, it's Sweeper Man who comes into my mind because he has stolen my imagination and my heart. And I think the funniest thing that we did before this was we just kept talking about him becoming like this broader figure and merchandising for Sweeper Man. And like now that Amazon, and I'm, I'm, I'm taking your words here, James, now that Amazon right. has taken over the Bond franchise, like having, you know, a, a series of brooms and sweeping up the competition and like all these little puns that, that, that could come out of something. And I really want him to come back. Like he, he can have a character arc. Um, you know, maybe he'll have a hose and it won't be on or something like there's ways of bringing him back, giving him these cameos. That hose that's not on. <laughs> and he's going to be like a guy. And, and maybe as we were discussing before, like maybe he's an actual spy and he's spying, like I'm pretending to sweep, but, but looking like there could be something here. I think there's a lot of potential. So let's see well, where we can go with this. Adele tried in the theme song for the next film when she says swept away. She's, she's talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's confirmed. I'm pretty sure I read that somewhere. Um, you might get a Sean, Sean Longmore poster out of the deal, Lisa, but I don't know if you're going to get it. Yeah. Oh, we can get a Sean, Sean Longmore montage because we've got Sweeper Guy in Honor Majesty's Secret Service, mm. Whistling Goldfinger, right? Right. And then we've got Sweeper Guy in the men's bathroom in Living Daylights. Oh. Oh. So there's the trilogy of sweeper guys. Maybe it's the same character, just played by different actors through the series, like Felix Lighter. Like Felix Lighter. Bond franchise. There's going to be another one out there that I can't think of off the top of my head. Q in License to Kill. There you go. (laughs) Here we go. I'm telling you, there's something here. There's something here. Oh, uh, can I mention two more? Uh, I think he's billed as attendant, played by Sid Haig in Diamonds Are Forever. Uh, like, I, I got, got a brother. I, I got a brother. <laughs> it's like before that is is a lot, you know, lot smoother ride in the front, Mister Franks. I believe I'll sit in the front. <laughs> it's like, and of course, in real life, Sid Haig, at that point, he was like a very busy character actor, and then after that, he became this big horror star. He shaved his head and grew a beard, but uh, yeah. And then the other one would be Cab Driver, played by Arnold Williams in uh, Little Let Die. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and, and, and interviewed in a recent issue of MI6 Confidential Magazine. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he says, uh, like, and so, so, so Bond, you know, is in his cab and says, like, you know, follow that, you know, whatever. And then, and then of course, it turns out he's, you know, part of Mr. Big's operation. And then he shows up in the new, uh, the new Orleans, uh, sequence and says, because then he gives like, he addresses Jim, James Bond by his nickname. Uh, surprise, Jim, you're going to go skydiving. Like, Oh, like the, so he's technically the first person to address James Bond by nickname in the film series. Like, Oh, somebody called in to, uh, argue with me about no, that. But, uh, Michael G. Wilson is one to call in to argue. That was the culturally <laughs> insensitive impression of Hotline was about to start ring. <laughs> anyway. Live and Let Die is rich with those little like, little characters that only have a line or two. Right. And Mrs. It. Bell, which I, I assumed actually, I incorrectly assumed uh, Calvin would bring up. 
<laughs> so I die. Yeah, but yeah, this is Bell as well. Even Mr. Bleaker. He makes quite oh, an impact. Yeah. <laughs> Phil, have you got any other little favorites? Gosh. Well, you know, the uh, I would like to go back to the tie boy. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but it is interesting how <clears throat> there was a very pointed uh, comment on one of the commentaries about how the world of Bond didn't have children. Like this was a commentary for Goldfinger and it was a very sort of adult fantasy world. And then once kids came in, they were all mouthy, obnoxious <laughs> Children in uh, Diamonds Are Forever, yeah, and in uh, in and in Man with the Golden Gun, when the little kid's trying to sell him the elephant. Um, so it's interesting how this franchise has sort of decided to include children in a way. Um, they're they're kind of pests and nuisances, and I think that's sort of telling uh, in, in its own weird way. Um, and who knows? Who knows where where that's going to go from here? <laughs> but I guess the other one on my list was. Um, Kind of a cheat because it was Eric Pullman and Anthony Dawson as the Blofeld you don't see. Uh, because I think mm-hmm. it's such a really, really effective way of setting up this mystery menace, uh, you know, with his voice, which is almost like this hammer horror kind of voice. It was just so full of uh, just like ill intent um, when you heard it in those films. And mm-hmm. it's almost as if the actors couldn't live up to what was set up. And I think that they're. I mean, for me, it's an iconic visual, but Pleasance was such a, a, a wrinkle of disappointment when you finally saw Blofeld, I think, because the obviously what your imagination is going to fill in is a bigger deal. But Pullman's voice was just perfect, I think. Um, and it's a shame that they couldn't, you know, uh, fill that expectation, I guess, ultimately. I would argue, actually, that Blofeld never matched that, that bar. that just didn't. Well, I, I would argue that Blofeld is a bit like the end of Game of Thrones. It's like everybody has their version of what it should be. Yeah. And it's never going to be that, so nobody's ever going to be happy. Schrodinger's Blofeld's cat? Um, to, to the yeah. point where Fleming changed Blofeld. Oh, he changed it wildly from film to film. To yeah. suit the uh, book, book, right? To, book. to yeah. suit the book. So there's nothing really – you can't say there's an authentic Blofeld in either the films or the books. Yeah. And, and I, I like just, the way that – sorry – Go ahead, Phil. No. Well, just Finish to wrap that up, I say, yeah. know, I would just want to put a button on that, and that's why the, the the one you don't see is maybe the most effective one for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and my point is actually just going with that in the way that popular culture has recognized in many ways that, in a sense, the legends or the myths that we have when we don't know something, the fear of the unknown, building it up, not showing a face, maybe just showing a body part, having a particular voice. We fill in the blanks in our mind and then you see it, whether it's on cartoons or other films that kind of play mockingly with spy culture and various elements, they'll show a figure and then you know they step out of the shadow and it's somebody who does not look like the shadow. Like We can see that the shadow was an exaggeration and then this person is completely disappointing by comparison. And, and I, I kind of like the fact that pop culture has picked up on, on, you know, the, the, the myth and, and, and the, and the secrecy and, and the unknown is more scary than the actual figure themselves. Right. So my secondary was going to be professor Joe butcher ah. from license to kill. <laughs> who's only in, it for seconds per per scene. So if you added up his screen time, it's probably less than a minute. But Bless um, your heart. right. So a, a villain to the villains. Uh, I guess he's a uh, like an adjacent villain. I think you'd say. Um, 
and obviously, you know, his dark side comes out when Pam confronts him, but um, he just chuckles it off and runs away, even when he loses his money. Um, so played brilliantly, I think, by Wayne Newton. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I, I know a lot of people don't like the character because it kind of takes you out the, the realism of the film. But to me, it adds to the realism of the film because that's what ter- televangelists were like, mm-hmm. especially in the late 80s, early 90s. Oh, um, at the time, absolutely. At the time. Correct. Yeah. Um, so he was my call. And I, I'm still looking for the, the Cone Power book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a licensed merch that we should be able to get. <clears throat> you did the back cover of one of your issues with that. It's like, that's how I display yes, that we did. one. I leave right. that out, you know, that side up on the coffee table. <laughs> no, it's funny is I was flicking through that issue, um, going somewhere on a, pre-pandemic on the plane. And I was getting like weird looks from people on the plane. <laughs> yeah, you were. Um, and, <laughs> and then I turned it over and realized, oh yeah, it's a full page ad for Cone Power. <laughs> Perfect. Yes. So would you like the results of our poll? Yes. Okay. A quick poll. Yes. Yep. So in last place, showing and proving what the fuck do I know is Raul from Dine of the Day. <laughs> oh. <laughs> he came last. Um, second last was tied Sylvia Trench and Baron Samedy. What? Oh. Mm. oh. Mm. Me. Yeah. Um, so in third place with the bronze medal is Blofeld's cat mm. getting the silver, ironically, for her teeth is Dolly. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> Very good. And um, first place, Jenny Flex and Pan Ho. As unsung characters. <gasps> I'm so <They're>... excited. <laughs> there you go. I would never have predicted these. No, no. I results. thought Calvin was going to win. <laughs> yeah, I, I did too. Uh, cat. I thought right. Blofeld's cat. Uh, mm. yeah. It was mm. close at the top, but Jenny mm. Flex and Panaho just edged it out. But you <clears> kind of picked two there, Lisa, so could disqualify you. I guess. Well, yeah. I mean, but they're a team. They're a duo. <laughs> like you couldn't what? say Mr. Hey, Mr. Kid and and t- leave away Mr. Wind, right? Yeah. They, they're they're a combo. They're a couple. Mm. Well, and I will say there is a scene in the View to a Kill where you see uh, the bodies of Jenny Flex and Penho floating by, and then like Mayday says, "Jenny," and then like you know Bond says, "Yeah, you know, come on, we gotta go." Um, and that's actually a powerful scene, a very serious scene in an otherwise over the top film. But uh, yeah. Well, there's there's a lot of dark bits of a view to a kill. That's why I think a lot of people don't like it because it's kind of schizophrenic between its tone. Yeah, and, to I, see. and I think that's also why Roger Moore decided, like, I'm done. I, I'm. Uh, yeah, that that was the reason. Yeah, we're done. I'm done. <laughs> well, he needed a new hip, and he yeah. was like sixty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm done. This is uh, we're done here. Goodbye. All right, so. Maybe we'll revisit this topic another time with a slightly different spin on it. But I yeah. think it was good to pick out some of the, the characters that don't really get a lot of attention discussion. So I would like to thank Bill, David, Phil, Dr. Lisa and Calvin for joining us on this quick trip around the cameos. We'll see you again next week. Bye. See you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Sleeping with the enemy You'll wind up
a rational lover With a licence of thrill I'd soon discover That despite like her, you won't find another I met her in a bar at a state reception With lips like sugar, I made an exception Should have known better, should have called her bluff She had me in a spell from Russia 